can love about Jesus? The way he interacts with people. Don't you love how you can flip through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see the way he interacts with individuals, whether they're male or female, young or old? One of my favorite scenes is in Mark 9 and 10 when Jesus gathers those little children around them and he describes them as precious, saying to those crowds, unless you become like one of these little children, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want us this morning to look at an occasion that Jesus interacted with a woman, and frankly, this is a very challenging passage. In my opinion, it's the most challenging encounter Jesus had with an individual. We read about her in Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, and we also read about this in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. We're going to use the Mark 7 encounter as our primary point of entry this morning, and Look at Mark 15 or Matthew 15 as a parallel as we go. And the reason this is difficult is because this woman was a Greek. Uh, Matthew describes her as a Canaanite. Some translations say she's a Gentile. And when Jesus encounters her, he's a long way from Jerusalem. And in addition to that, he uses the word dog in his interaction with her. And many people have read about this encounter and wonder, why did Jesus say that? And why initially did it seem that he refused to cast the demon out of her daughter? I want us to look at this not only because it's a difficult passage, but more importantly, I think we learned something about the heart of Jesus on this occasion, and we learned something about the heart of God with regard to how we ought to look at other people, how we ought to serve other people, how we ought to avoid making snap judgments that are unfair about other people. Let's start by noticing how this encounter begins in an unclean place. In Matthew 15, verse 21, and in Mark 7, verse 24, we're told that Jesus went away from Gennesaret. Now, that place isn't mentioned in those passages, but if we back up a bit in the context of both of these books, in Mark 6, verse 53, and in Matthew 14, verse 34, Jesus had been teaching in Gennesaret, which is right there on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then he journeys northwest, towards the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Mark 7 only mentions Tyre, but Matthew mentions that Tyre and Sidon are both in this region. That's where Jesus goes. And interestingly, when he gets there, he enters into a house. And we're told that he entered in this house and that he didn't want to be discovered. He wanted to be there in private. We know from Matthew's account, his disciples are with him. In the gospel accounts, especially Matthew and Mark, Jesus frequently teaches his disciples in those private settings. Sometimes that's where they ask difficult questions. Jesus in Mark 4 and in Matthew 13 tells the parable of the sower and his disciples don't understand that and they wait until they're in private to ask him about it. And so it could be, even though we're not told that Jesus was planning on resting there and perhaps teaching his disciples there, but he couldn't be hidden. In addition to this, this was a tough place to be The first century historian Josephus says that the bitterest enemies of the Jews lived in Tyre and Sidon. And in earlier Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3 and verse 8, we find that there are people from Tyre and Sidon and other areas that are coming to hear Jesus. And so not everything in Tyre and Sidon is bad. And we know that in part because Mark says immediately coming into that dwelling place was a woman. This woman had a problem. Not only was she living in an unclean place, she had a daughter. Mark describes her as a little girl, a little daughter who had an unclean spirit. 
Now, sometimes our children get sick, and that can be a scary and terrifying thing. But as a parent, I've never experienced this. And it's difficult, I think, to understand what demon possession in the first century was all about because we've never encountered anything like that. But from reading the gospel accounts, it seems that demon possession was in some ways a deceit, a trick. It was intended to show the world that Satan had power and to scare people. Because after all, if a little girl could get an evil spirit, anyone could get an unclean spirit. And so these demons terrorized people. We know from the story of Legion in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, it certainly terrified the people in the land of the Gadarenes. They kept trying to tie him up. They tried to restrain him. They didn't want that nuisance, that scary situation in their neighborhood. But here you have a woman who doesn't, not only has a scary situation, she has a heartbreaking dilemma. No one could help her. No physician could assist her. No one had an answer for what might make her daughter feel better. And we're told that not only did she come to Jesus, Matthew says she fell down before him. She worshipped, some translations might even say, because it's the same word, to fall down before or to worship. She comes before him and she urgently pleads for her daughter. Mark 7 doesn't tell us this, but in Matthew 15, we're told that she cries out so much and so loudly that the disciples basically get annoyed. And eventually they ask Jesus, who at first doesn't say anything to this woman, who's in a desperate place with a desperate situation involving the health and well-being of her daughter to eventually answer her because she was annoying them. It's a scary scene. In Matthew 15, verse 22, we're told that when she approached Jesus, she not only fell before him, but reverently, persistently cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is possessed with a cruel demon. This is a desperate, life-changing, life-altering situation. Her daughter has had a direct encounter with the kingdom of darkness, and here she is in a place where few people have access to the power of God, but she comes to Jesus desperate for help. But in addition to the unclean place and the unclean spirit, we also need to make note of the woman making this request. We've already noted how Mark 7 describes her as a Greek or a Gentile. Matthew uses the word Canaanite. She's a woman of Syrophoenician birth, meaning that she's not from the area of Palestine. That's where Jesus does most of his ministering. That's where he serves most frequently around the Sea of Galilee, occasionally, according to John's gospel account, making visits to Jerusalem where he would heal the sick and address the crowds, making sure they had access to the bread of life. And here this woman is, desperate for help encountering Jesus. The text says that when she comes before him, she kept asking him, Mark 7, verse 26, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And it's then that Matthew 15 says the disciples are annoyed, that Jesus holds his peace. What an unusual situation. And what makes this encounter even more difficult to understand, at least at first reading, is what Jesus says in response to her request for help. We've noted the difficulty of the situation, but then we see what Jesus says in Mark 7, verse 27, and this is paralleled almost verbatim in Matthew 15, verse 26. He says, Let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, when you hear what Jesus says, it's pretty clear from the context 
that the children here are the Jews. That's where Jesus spends most of his time ministering. And so in contrast to the children who are at the master's table, who are sharing in the master's feast, that's the language of Matthew 15, you have these dogs, you have these Gentiles, people who do not typically have access to the feast of God. And commentaries and scholars have tried to do all kinds of things with this. We know shortly after this exchange, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And on that occasion, we hear about children and bread. And so people want to do everything we can to sort of distract from the reality that it seems at first Jesus uses an insult, a slur, in describing not only this woman, but the people group that she represents. And this perhaps is made more troubling by the fact that in Matthew's account, in Matthew 15, verse 24, Jesus uses this occasion to remind his present disciples and perhaps others who were in the house that his primary work, the reason he came, Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man came to the seek and to save that which was lost. But Matthew is more specific here when he says that the Son of Man, or Jesus, was sent only. That's an exclusive adverb, isn't it? For the lost sheep of the household of Israel. This is a difficult scene. Can you imagine being in that house as this woman on her knees begs for mercy, addresses Jesus reverently, persistently. She's got a desperate situation at home and Jesus' response as we read this seems so cold, so detached from the reality of the woman in distress and need. And then there's what's said. Now, I put this picture up here on purpose because I think when we ask the question, why did Jesus refer to her as a dog? And it's interesting that in her clever response, she acknowledges that designation. She doesn't deny it. She shows incredible restraint and humility, and we should make note of her faith. Matthew 15 says that Jesus says, comments on her faith. She doesn't just have a clever response. She comes to him in faith. She responds to him in faith. She responds to him with humility. And I want to be humble here to suggest that I'm not sure we can nail the answer to this question down, but there are some really bad answers that have been given to this question. One example would be people, the word for dogs here refers to little dogs. Now, when you read what the Bible says about dogs, and I just couldn't bring myself to preach a whole sermon on that topic, right? But when you see what the Bible says about dogs, it's never favorable. There's never a reference in Scripture to dogs that's good. I mean, in 2 Peter 2, 22, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter uses that proverb where he says about dogs that they return to their vomits. Paul, in talking about the, the Pharisees and the Jews who insisted on circumcision, warned his readers in Galatians, beware of the dogs. This is never a favorable thing. We could go back to the story of Jezebel or the rich man and Lazarus. Dogs do not play a good role in any of those stories, in any of those encounters, and yet people want to explain this away as a compliment. Really? Someone said, well, they're little dogs. Maybe they're the kind of dogs that are under the table in a household, like a pet. And we all love our pets. And so when Jesus refers to the dogs, he's using this in an affectionate way. I've seen people suggest, well, this isn't a street dog, it's a house dog. And Those kinds of dogs get more love than street dogs. I don't think I've ever used the word dog this much in a sermon. But when we think about this reply, there are all sorts of ways that people read this and take this and want to interpret this. 
And while it might be that in our culture, somebody referring to you as a top dog or a big dog or you work like a dog could be a compliment, this was not a compliment to her. And to try to explain it away by suggesting that we should look at puppies instead of thinking about this as an insult to the people, the Gentiles, I think is missing the point of the context of what's being said in Mark 7 and in Matthew 15. And so it's easy here to sort of sidestep the question and talk about her faith, which we should talk about, her persistence and her humility and, and the way that she responds when Jesus says this. And you've got these disciples who seem to be more concerned about having peace and quiet than helping her in this situation. But what I want to do is zoom out from this a bit. Because I think the context in which this encounter is, is shared, the, the story as it's embedded in the narrative of Mark 7 and then Matthew 15, sheds light on what really is going on in the heart and mind of Jesus. Jesus did not insult her on this occasion but he does make reference to a reality that was accepted in his world. He does make reference to a reality that was true in his mission. He was primarily sent to the Jews, but there was a particular purpose to that mission that I want us to explore. But if we zoom out from this a bit, just notice that as Mark 7 begins, excuse me, Mark chapter 7 begins, and this is parallel to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 15 verses 1 and 2, that as this story begins, Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees and the scribes. And the reason they're challenging him, again in, in Mark 7 or in Matthew 15, the first few verses of both of those chapters, is because he's not following, according to their scruples and standards, the rituals of hand-washing as he should. And so Jesus, in turn, re rebukes them. He responds to them, starting in Mark 7, verse 6, and in the parallel in Matthew 15, by talking about how it's what's on the inside. It's the purity of heart that these men should be concerned about rather than their man-made rituals. And then Jesus pivots around Mark 7 verse 14 and begins talking to the crowd about purity. And it's at the end of that exchange, right before the story of Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, that he's been talking about purity and the way we look at people and the way we think about people. And then right after this encounter, in Mark 7, verse 31, Jesus continues going to a Gentile area on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to an area called Decapolis. In Greek, it means ten cities. There he heals a deaf man who had trouble speaking, who was likely a Gentile. There he feeds 4,000 people, which parallels the feeding of the 5,000, which involved primarily Gentiles. And after that, guess what happens again? The Pharisees come to him again concerned about his teaching, concerned about his, his, his truth, concerned about his ministry. And we're told in that setting, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 12, that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit saying, why does this generation seek for a sign? No sign will be given to this generation. And after that, Jesus goes back to the area of Galilee that he spends most of his time ministering in. What's the point? What Jesus says about this woman was certainly believed by most Jews. It was not only believed, it was taught. And if the Pharisees in that private setting had encountered this Syrophoenician woman, they not only would have called her a dog, they would have treated her like a dog. They would have had nothing to do with her. They would have offered her no help. And so in the overall context of Jesus' ministry, as he's now outside the borders of Palestine, as he's ministering among people who are not Jews, he certainly doesn't sidestep the primary point of his mission 
but he also doesn't use a racial slur to describe this woman. This is a story that's much bigger than just her persistence and her humility and her faith, even though we need to to make note of that. This is also a story of how God measures, how God values and treasures and evaluates faith. We might ask the question, what is it about this woman that we should make note of? Is it her race? Because that's certainly mentioned here. It's actually highlighted in the text more than her gender is. Is it her social circumstances? Is it the background that we know that she brings to the table? Those are the ways that she would have been evaluated in the first century. And even if someone wants to say, well, Jesus still wasn't willing to heal her until, or her daughter until she persistently pursued this occasion, the truth is he did heal her daughter. As this text concludes, it says, Matthew's account says, that very hour she was healed. When the woman goes home, this is one of those encounters from a distance where Jesus shows tremendous power. And there are a number of other parallels we could draw here. The fact this woman fell down at the feet of Jesus, just like a Jew by the name of Jairus, back in Mark 5, verse 22, fell down before his feet asking for help for his daughter, just like that woman with a bleeding condition, starting in Mark 5, verse 24, pursued Jesus and touched the hem of his garment and persisted in her desire to be healed. We certainly see these themes elsewhere in Mark's gospel. What's the point? Why are we talking about this? There was something about her heart and the heart of a number of other Gentiles that wanted diligently to pursue God despite the fact that Jesus' particular ministry was more for the Jews than the Gentiles. When we began to think about this, it's interesting whether we're looking at the Old Testament and the promise made to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that the Israelites would be his chosen people, or the fact that according to what Jesus says, even in the limited commission of Matthew 10, 5, 6, and 7, where he tells his disciples, when you go out, don't enter into a village of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. I'm sending you to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. That those particular missions, even though they were designated for one particular race, had a global mission in mind. There was a universal application to be made. We know that from Paul in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, where he reminds us that we're all sons and daughters of Abraham through faith. We know that from the commission Jesus gives in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 to his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We know that from the way the Holy Spirit outlines Acts. In Acts 1.8, they don't just go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, They're commissioned to go to the uttermost parts, to the ends of the earth. What's the picture? What's the point here? We shouldn't lose sight because of the context of the promise of the Jews in the Old Testament or the particulars of Jesus' ministry primarily to the lost sheep of the household of Israel that Jesus, as the kingdom of God is in breaking, already has in mind salvation for all people. Salvation for Jews and Gentiles. Salvation for men and women. Salvation for the single and the married. For the person with healthy children and the person with a demon-possessed daughter lying at home in misery and in agony. When we begin to think about this reality, I think it's expressed for us as New Testament Christians in passages like Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where clearly we have a particular ministry in mind for the household of faith. He says, do good to all people everywhere, but especially to those who are the household of faith meaning that we have a special opportunity and obligation to minister to our brothers and sisters in particular. But as we do that, individually and collectively, 
Because our collective mission is tied to our head, Christ Jesus, who demonstrates this kind of love and compassion in his ministry. As we reach out to those who are fellow Christians, we do so knowing that there's a lost and dying world around us and that those people who are outside of Christ also have needs. Can we meet every need? Certainly not. I can't do that on my own. And if someone takes advantage of my benevolence or the grace that I want to show someone, that's between them and God. But if I refuse them help, that's between me and God. And what we see Jesus do here is demonstrate faithfulness to the charge God had given him, not only to serve the lost sheep of the household of Israel, but to keep in mind the fact that the blood he shed was for all people everywhere. And that while we as Christians have taken advantage of the opportunity to be bought back from sin by the precious, perfect blood of our Savior Jesus, there's a world full of people who need to see grace, who need to see love, who need, despite the awkward social circumstances and what what we might assume to be true about them, they need to see Jesus. And so if it's true that anyone can come to Jesus, who should I refuse to love? Who should I refuse to serve? Who should I turn my back on? You know, perhaps this woman in her clever, faith-filled response demonstrates the way that a lot of people would respond if we were to look down our nose at them. Jesus wasn't looking down his nose at her. He loved her. And we see that love come out in the way he spoke, and we see that love come out in the way that he eventually acts in the context in which he's being challenged on every occasion by people who want to exclude the world. And while we're in the world, but not of the world, may we never forget there's a world full of people who may not have demon-possessed daughters at home, but they have spiritual needs that are just as heartbreaking and just as serious. May we speak and serve and love and show a Christ-like spirit that doesn't just stay in our building that doesn't just come out on Sunday or when it's convenient. May we be willing to share Jesus in word and deed with everyone we meet. Why? That's the heart of God. That's what we've been called to do. That's what Jesus did even on a difficult occasion. And so while we may acknowledge the kind of language that's used to describe people that are unfortunately put in circumstances or who may, might, might make life choices that put them in a difficult place. I don't want to look down my nose at anybody. Because if there's ever been a sinner, I'm him. If there's ever been someone that didn't deserve the love of God in Christ Jesus, it's me. I'm not just saying that. I know that. And God shows a selfless love that pursues and redeems and restores despite the filth if we're willing to come home to him. I wonder this morning what urgency we could show. Maybe it's not the same situation the Syrophoenician woman had, but perhaps there are needs that are pressing on our heart that are just as hard and just as difficult and burden us down, and we come running and fall at the feet of Jesus, saying, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I've got this situation And while there might be people in the world around me who say, you deserve it because of your race, because of your age, because of your gender, because of your background, because of the way that I've put you in a particular box, God says, come to me all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
That's the promise of a God who loves and who pursues. So perhaps, for whatever reason, you feel like the world has passed by you and forgotten about you. God knows your name, and he knows your need. And this morning, he has surrounded you with people who wear the name of Christ and who want to show God's heart in the way that they talk and in the way that they serve and ultimately in the way we share our faith. Will you come this morning knowing that you're not going to be judged by your fellow man, that ultimately God, our righteous judge, desires to redeem you. You can come in faith, turning from sin, confessing Christ Jesus as Lord, coming in contact with the water that represents the blood of Jesus, knowing that in that moment you're set free from sin and added to the church and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism so that you can now serve others in the way that God first loved you. What a blessing it is. Perhaps today is the day we fall at the feet of Jesus, asking for mercy in private or in public. We serve a great God. Amen. We come. Together we stand and sing. Each step I take, my Savior goes before me.